How are you guys doing this morning? Is his mic on? It says it's green. Are we on? No? Alright, there we go. We've got some vocalization. Wow, that's a great picture of me. So, raise your hand if you had less than eight hours of sleep last night. Alright, keep it raised if you had less than six. Less than five? Less than four? Less than three? Less than two? Wow, that's impressive. Uh, well, hopefully you got some level of sleep last night. Uh, I promised last night that I would introduce myself a little bit more to you this morning, introduce my family. Got some pictures of my family, I think, here, next. So, this is a picture of us at Myrtle Beach a couple of year, uh, suppers ago. Uh, I have two brothers, Eric and Adam, and their wives, Nicole and Hannah, and they each have two uh, kids, and um, they're my, my parents right next to me. But this was taken two years ago, so this picture is pretty incomplete. And there's, so there's one more, because we had a new addition to our family. About uh, two months ago, my fifth uh, niece was brought into the world. Her name is Ruthie. She's pretty awesome. So there's a little bit about me and my family, and a little bit about uh, who I am. So, um, well, I hope you guys are uh, doing well this morning. Uh, what we started to say together last night uh, was that we're, we're in this time of our lives called college. And that college is an amazing time of life. That it's maybe one of the best times of life uh, to consider life's most important questions. Because we're given probably more freedom and more space uh, than in any other time in our lives to really think about the big questions of existence, really think about what we believe and why we believe it. And so because we're in this really unique time called college, uh, we need to make the most of it. We need to steward this opportunity well to really uh, think through uh, some of life's most important questions. And so there are three questions in particular uh, that we are going to look at together this weekend. Last night we looked at who am I? which is a question of identity. Uh, we're going to look at, this morning we're going to look at why am I here, uh, which is a question of meaning. And then tomorrow we're going to look at what does my future hold, which is a question of hope. And uh, what we also said last night was that, uh, that all cultures throughout history have all formed answers to these questions, that they've all uh, thought through these questions. But it's our conviction that Christianity has unique answers to these questions. That, that Christianity and Scripture and the Gospel proclaim unique things that are uniquely uh, freeing, uniquely transforming, uh, uniquely uh, powerful in, in how they answer some of these questions. And so what we want to do is spend some time answering uh, how is Jesus uh, and, and Christianity significant to these questions. And so this morning, we're going to look at the question, why am I here? And that is a question of meaning. And so to do that, we're going to look together in Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be looking in verses 31 to 39. Um, Romans was written by the same person who wrote our, the book last night, Philippians, a guy named Paul, who was one of the founders and teachers of the early church. And uh, just like he was writing the letter to Philippi in Philippians, he was writing this letter to a church in Rome. And so we're going to pick it up in Romans 8, 
starting in verses 31 to 39. The context is, in the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul had just been describing the significance of who Jesus is and what he has done and the grace of God available to us in Christ. Uh, So uh, the entire message of the gospel, he took eight chapters to describe the grace that's available to us in Jesus. And so he kind of makes this transition now uh, in this section. So verse 31 says this. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word, and it's given to us because he loves us. So Atul Gawande uh, is a surgeon and a professor at Harvard Medical School, and he wrote a book that came out a few years ago called Being Mortal. And this book called Being Mortal uh, was on the New York Times number one bestseller list. Uh, I highly recommend it. And um, in this book, Atul Gawande, uh, this professor at Harvard Medical School, explores the relationship between modern medicine and the, the aging and the dying and how uh, modern medical practices are, are doing when it, when it comes to that. Um, and so... Atul Gawande tells the story in this book of a particular doctor named Bill Thomas. And Bill Thomas was, he worked uh, at at a nursing home in upstate New York. And at the time, Bill was a young doctor. He was in his early 30s. He was was fresh out of his medical residency. Uh, And he went to uh, become the medical director of this nursing home that had about 80 elderly residents uh, who were who were, uh, who were uh, impaired physically, cognitively, uh, who were disabled. Uh, and initially, when he took, he took on this role, he was very discouraged and disappointed by what he saw because he realized that the residents there uh, were devoid of life and spirit and, and energy. Um, he didn't really seem at first like he, like he was able to make a difference in the quality of life of these elderly residents in, in the nursing home. And so he started to do what he had learned in medical school. He started running tests and doing physical uh, examinations and running, running lab reports. And uh, he, he started to put into practice what he learned. Um, but uh, Gawande tells a story. He says that after several weeks of this, that he just drove everybody crazy. That the only result, he, he didn't make any difference in the quality of life. What he did was he just drove up the cost of the medical bills, and he made the entire nursing home and, and nursing staff crazy. 
Um, and so finally at the end of this, uh, Thomas said, all right, we gotta, we gotta try something different. And he looked to something that was uh, different from the, the stuff that he learned in medical school. And he said, all right, we're gonna try an experiment. Uh, we're gonna put life into this nursing home. And we're gonna put life in this nursing home by bringing plants, uh, by bringing animals, dogs and cats and birds into it. We're gonna build a playground outside and we're gonna let uh, the nursing home staff kids come in and play. Uh, so that's what they did. So they, brought in, they brought in dogs, they brought in cats, they brought in birds. Uh, the kids came and, and played outside. And initially, Thomas says, it was absolute chaos. They had no idea what they were doing. This is not what the, what the nurses and doctors were, were trained to do. Uh, they, they didn't know how to take care of these birds, how to take care of these animals. Uh, and Thomas says, it was absolute chaos. <clears throat> but Gawande says that, that that was part of the beauty of it. Because the, the staff, the nurses and the doctors were so incompetent that everyone had to pitch in just to keep up with taking care of the dogs, taking care of the cats and the birds. Uh, the residents, the, the elderly residents in the nursing, nursing home started to pitch in. They started to take care and water the plants. They started to, to feed the animals, the, the cats and the dogs and the birds. And the, the results of this experiment, experiment were absolutely amazing. Uh, the nursing home residents started to come alive. Uh, Dr. Thomas says that people who we had believed weren't able to speak started speaking. That people who had been completely withdrawn and unable to move started coming to the nurse's station and asking if they could take a, the dog for a walk. And there were researchers who studied this nursing home and they found that the number of prescription drugs taken by residents dropped by 50% that the total drug cost dropped by 38%, and that deaths fell by 15%. And the study didn't conclude uh, why, it didn't, it didn't provide an explanation, but Dr. Thomas did, and here's what he said. He said, I believe that the difference that the experiment made can be traced back to the fundamental need for a human reason to live, for a reason to live. We all need a reason to live. We gotta have meaning. We, we gotta have meaning to live. We can't live without it. And in some ways, right, so our series this weekend is called Dorm Room Questions, but in some ways, this is the quintessential dorm room question, right? Like, what is the meaning of life? Like, that's, like that's, those are the questions that we we're, we're wide awake with our friends in our dorm room at 3 a.m. and we've had way too much caffeine and too much food that's bad for us and we're just talking about uh, what is the meaning of life. Well, let's talk about first what we mean by meaning. Uh, it's kind of meta, right? The meaning of meaning. Well, but it's important, right? What do we mean when we talk about meaning? So, uh, pastor and author Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, I think provides a helpful guide for us as we talk about meaning, uh, that there's kind of two aspects of meaning that we want to consider. Uh, the first is purpose, and purpose addresses what is something for? What's something for? So if I were to bring out like a hammer and say, what is this, what is the meaning of this hammer? And say the meaning of this hammer is to drive nails. That's the meaning of the hammer. That is what it's for. That is its purpose. But meaning is also significance. Uh, significance is what something signifies or what something points to. So if you were to go to a foreign country and you were to read uh, words in a language that you don't understand, 
you would probably ask somebody, what do these words mean? What do these words mean? And what you would mean by that is, what do these words signify? What concept or idea are these words pointing to? So meaning involves both purpose and significance. Listen, we know intrinsically that life is meaningful. Because we live as, we live as if it is, right? You're here this weekend because you have made a, a meaningful choice. You've made a meaningful choice to come here away for a weekend because you've said, you know, spending time with my friends is meaningful. And investing in my spiritual life with God, that's meaningful. And time spent building community, that's meaningful. We, we live as if our lives are meaningful. And yet, we know also that finding in the finding meaning in the world can also have its problems, can also have its issues, that sometimes the world confronts us not as a place of meaningfulness, but as a place of meaninglessness and chaos. There are things that happen in the world that we look at and we say, this is chaos. How in the world could there possibly be meaning in this? I think about how incredibly and deeply uh, just saddened I was to turn on the news on Monday morning and, and read about the, the shooting that happened in Las Vegas uh, on Sunday night and to think about just the horror and the evil and the, the chaos and the meaninglessness that, that made the, the worst shooting in U.S. history happen uh, just a week ago. I mean, we look at that and we go, man, that's not meaningful. That is chaos. That's meaninglessness. That's evil. That's, that's awful. And so we, we look at the world and we, we, we say, you know, can there be meaning even in those things? And what I want us to see this morning is that the Christian answer is that there is indeed meaning in the world, that there is indeed meaning in our own lives and even in the difficult things. And that's true because of Jesus. It's true because of Jesus, because in Jesus that there is a meaning that not even the most difficult thing is that can take away. In Jesus, there is a meaning that not even suffering or death can destroy. And so we're going to look at two, uh, two sort of aspects of meaning this morning. We're going to look at first the problem of meaning, and then we're going to look at the source of meaning, all right? So first, the problem of meaning. So uh, anybody who, who takes a class in college, like a philosophy 101 class, knows that meaning is a problem. Meaning, it's a philosophical, intellectual problem for, for human existence. Uh, and so obviously, we don't, we're not going to have time to explore all those ways for why it's a problem, uh, but we do have time to explore two. Uh, that there is both an objective and a subjective element to the problem of meaning in this world, philosophically and existentially. Uh, objectively, here's the objective problem with meaning. Many philosophers and scientists, uh, both... Uh, a couple hundred years ago and modern today have said that it is very difficult to justify objective, intrinsic meaning in the world from a secular viewpoint. That is, uh, if there's no God, if this material world is all there is, that's sort of the secular viewpoint. Uh, that from that viewpoint, it is incredibly difficult to say the world has objective, intrinsic Meaning, and many influential thinkers have pointed this out. I'm going to I'm going to share with you too. So Thomas Nagel is a philosophy professor at uh, New York University, NYU, 
And uh, here's what Thomas Nagel says. He says, even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool, or the universe will wind down and collapse, and all trace of your effort will vanish. The problem is that although there are justifications for most things, big and small, that we do within life, None of these explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you have gone out of existence, it won't matter if you did exist. Nagel's point is this, that there's, there's no way to say that there's intrinsic meaning in the world because we know the laws of physics. And the laws of physics say our solar system has a sun, and one day that sun is going to explode. And, and that sun's explosion is going to wipe away, it's going to disintegrate everything that ever happened in human history. And so there's, it's just going to become uh, just disintegrated. Everything's going to, going to nothing's going to last. And so he says there's, there's no way to, to, to show that anything that we do has any lasting value from a purely secular standpoint. Richard Dawkins, who's a biologist at Oxford, also makes the same point. Here's what Richard Dawkins says. Dawkins says, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, do we have that quote, by the way? Yes. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Dawkins is making the same point from, from a biological perspective. He's saying if there's no God, uh, just from a purely secular standpoint, this material world is all there is. We know that the thing in life that guides everything is DNA. And DNA is an unguided process. There's no meaning behind it. There's no purpose behind it. There's no significance behind it. DNA just is, and we just act according to our DNA. There's no objective meaning in the world. So thinkers like Nagel and Dawkins and many others have taken this, have taken secularism to its logical conclusions and have said if there's no God, if there's no transcendent order in the universe, that we, to be intellectually consistent, we can't say that there's intrinsic meaning in the world. That's problem number one, that without God, there is no objective meaning in the world. But there's also a subjective problem. And here's the subjective problem. Because many people, especially in our culture, respond to problem number one, and they say, well, okay, well, even though there's no meaning out there in the world, no objective intrinsic meaning, uh, we can still determine meanings, meaning subjectively for ourselves. We can choose what is meaningful for us in our lives. Uh, this is the point that uh, Jerry Coyne makes, who's a professor at the University of Chicago. And uh, Jerry Coyne says this. He says, cosmology doesn't give one iota of evidence for purpose or for God. Secularists see a universe without apparent purpose and realize that we must forge our own purposes and our own ethics. Although the universe is purposeless, we make our own purposes. And uh, this, by the way, is probably what most people in our culture think, uh, that we are the ones who, who bring our own meaning into the world. We, meaning is what you make of it, right? 
And uh, so, so we, don't, we don't try to find out the one meaning in the universe, but we, we find meaning through our relationships, through our jobs, uh, through doing good and being moral. But there's also a problem with this line of thinking too. There's also a problem with this. Because even whatever we say has meaning in the world, the meaning that we give to it, whatever that is, someday is going to be taken away from us. Someday suffering is going to take that away. Someday, yeah, even death is going to take that away, what's most meaningful to us. If you find meaning in relationships, in love or in marriage or in friendship, someday suffering and death is going to take away the people that you love the most. If you uh, find your meaning in your career or your job, someday you're going to be too old to work. And you're not going to be able to work anymore. If you find uh, meaning in your, in your physical beauty, one day you're going to age and you're going to form wrinkles and you're not going to be as physically attractive as you once were. None of these things, uh, you know, all of these things will one day be taken away from us. And if we find meaning in those things and then, and then they're taken away from us, then what do we have left? Now, none of these things, you know, compare to, to what we know. I think deep down we all know that the most meaningful thing in life is love the love relationships that we have, uh, and, and even um, the uh, absurdist, nihilist uh, philosopher Albert Camus recognized this, that the most important thing in our life, the most meaningful thing in our life is love. And here's what Albert Camus says. He says, we want love to last, but we know that it does not last. Even if by some miracle it were to last a whole lifetime, it would still be incomplete. In the final analysis, every man is devoured by the overpowering desire to endure and to possess those whom he has loved. We desire to endure and to possess love. And this is why Camus' philosophy, he was a French philosopher, Camus is known for having a philosophy called absurdism. And it is what it sounds like. His philosophy is that life is basically absurd. There's no meaning. There's no, there's no even subjective meaning. Why? Because we know that the, meaning, the, mo- the most meaningful thing in life is love, and we know that even love won't last. Even love will be taken away from us. So to summarize, uh, the problem with objective meaning is that if, if, there's, if there's a God, uh, meaning in the world is pretty much an illusion. But the problem even with subjective meaning uh, is that even if we say, here's what makes life meaningful, that's going to one day be taken away from us. And so when that happens, how can we continue to say that life is meaningful? How can we continue to say that this is what uh, brings meaning in the world? What love do we have? So that's, first of all, that's the problem of meaning. Now we're going to look at the source of meaning. Now we're going to look at the source of meaning. The Bible teaches that the world, that life in this world is intrinsically and inherently meaningful. And that is because God is behind it all. That is because God is the source of meaning. He's the one who has created all things and who rules over all things. In Genesis, after God creates the world, he says that it was all very good. And that includes you and I. Because human beings, we are the the pinnacle. We are the crown jewel of God's creation. That he has made us in his image. And he has made you and I to be in relationship with him. To have a love relationship with him and with one another. And because we are made in the image of God, we intrinsically, inherently have both purpose and significance. We have purpose. 
What, what are we called to do? Uh, the Bible teaches that we are called to live in a relationship with God and with one another and to reflect his character into the world and be on mission to take his uh, goodness and his beauty and his love to the entire world. That's our purpose. But we also have significance. We also point to something beyond ourselves. We point to the fact that there is a God, that th- there is a God who, who loves us, that our, our desires point to eternity. Our lives are meant to signify, are meant to point to the fact that there is a God. He is a transcendent being, and He is a God of love. And this is really what Romans 8, this passage that we read earlier, is, is really about. That the, the most meaningful thing in life is love. The whole point of Romans 8, which we just read earlier, is that there is nothing in this world that can take away God's love for you. That, that, that can take away God's love for you. In Jesus Christ, the most meaningful thing uh, that we could find. And for, for a Christian, that's supposed to bring an incredibly amount of comfort and security and assurance. Because what it means is that there's, there's nothing in all creation that, that can take away the thing in life that's most valuable, that's most meaningful. There's, there's nothing in our lives that can take away love. Why? Because God is the one behind it. Because he's the source of meaning. See, when it comes to the Bible, uh, Meaning, uh, meaning is not a problem with God. It's not God's problem. It is a problem with us. It is a problem with sin. The Bible talks about sin in a bunch of different ways, but one of the ways that the Bible describes sin is that sin is what brings meaninglessness into the world. Sin is what brings chaos into the world. It brings evil and, and suffering and death, these things that threaten meaning. And that is because sin alienates us from God. Sin separates us from God, who is the source of all meaning. And whatever brings chaos and meaninglessness into God's meaningful world deserves God's justice. It deserves his judgment because it's ruining, it's, it's uh, threatening God's design, his plan for the goodness of his world. The Bible teaches that our sin actually deserves God's wrath. Uh, now, here's the thing. Many of us don't like that. We, we don't, when we hear the word wrath, we don't like the, the idea that our, we have sin, we have this thing called sin and that it actually deserves God's wrath. We, we don't, for some reason, we don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable. But I would actually say, actually, we do. Actually, you do like wrath. Actually, I like wrath. Here's why. So imagine that one day you graduate from college and you get your dream job and you're getting paid six figures, and you get to buy your dream house. Imagine your dream house, and you get to buy that house and live in it, and it's awesome, and it's everything that you would always dream for. But one morning, you wake up in your dream house, and you look outside your window, and you see that the windows of your car have been smashed, and that there's tire tracks in your yard that have torn up your amazing uh, immaculate lawn. And you see that someone's uh, ran over your mailbox and they have spray painted all over your garage door and all over the front of your house. What are you going to feel in that moment? Anger. Rage. Wrath. Right? Why? Because this is your dream house. This is your uh, this is where you wanted love and flourishing and goodness and hope and beauty to happen. Not just for you, but your, for your family and for those who you're going to bring into your house. 
we, we would feel anger and, and wrath in that moment. Why? Because we are creatures of justice. Because we care about justice in this world. And so does God. Because you had a vision for your life for flourishing. And someone came and vandalized it. And the Bible teaches that this is exactly what we have done. What you and I have done to God and his world. Theologian uh, Cornelius Planiga offers one definition of sin. And it goes like this. That sin is the vandalism of God's creation. That sin is the vandalism of God's creation. That with our choices, with our words, and with our actions, we have run over God's mailbox. We have left tire tracks in his yard. We have left spray paint on his house. And this is not just something that we have done to God, but it is something that we have done to others and to his creation. Now listen. If you have vandalized your neighbor's yard, how big of a deal is that? How big of a crime is that? I mean, it's pretty bad, but if you paid him back, he he might forgive you. There might be a restored relationship there. Now, if you you vandalized a school or or a uh, a business in your community, how big of a crime is that? It's it's a little bit bigger. It's it's a bit worse. Uh, You probably have to pay a huge fine. You might do a little bit of jail time. It's a little bit heightened. Now, if you went down to Washington, D.C. this afternoon and vandalized federal property, not recommending you do this, by the way, but if you vandalized federal property, the the Supreme Court or the White House or the Capitol, how big of a crime is that? That's heightened even more. You're definitely going to jail for that. I mean, maybe maybe you'll get like a million-dollar fine, but you're definitely going to jail for that. Listen, do you think that God is more concerned about justice or less concerned about justice than the U.S. Supreme Court. When, when human beings have vandalized his creation, do you think that, that God is more concerned about justice or less concerned about justice? He is infinitely more just, and we deserve God's justice for, for vandalizing his world, for bringing chaos and meaninglessness into it. Now, that's the bad news about what the Bible says about the problem with meaning. But there's good news. And the good news is that what we have vandalized with our sin, that God comes and restores, that God comes and redeems. And it can be restored because Jesus Christ came and took the penalty for our sin. He came and took the justice for our vandalism that we deserved on the cross. This is what we read earlier in Romans 8 in our text in verse 32. It says... That if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The message of the gospel is that meaning is restored because Jesus Christ gave himself up for us on the cross. So, So why did Jesus have to be given up? Like why did Jesus have to die on the cross? John Lennox is a professor of mathematics at Oxford, and he's a Christian, and he tells a story about when he was traveling one time in Eastern Europe, and he uh, was speaking there and teaching there, and he had an opportunity to go visit a, uh, a synagogue, a synagogue that was being restored, a synagogue that was uh, destroyed uh, during the time of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, and so he goes on this guided tour um, of this synagogue there in Eastern Europe, 
And he struck up a conversation with a woman who said that she was there at the Holocaust because she was from that part of Eastern Europe. Uh, and she was there to find out more about the history of her family because she was Jewish and some of her, her family members had died in the Holocaust uh, in World War II. And eventually um, they kept going through the tour of the synagogue and they, they came to a place where there were, there were pictures of Auschwitz, one of the worst uh, death camps of, of uh, the Holocaust. And they, they look at this picture of Auschwitz and John Lennox says that his, his new friend that he had just met on the tour, um, you know, who had found out that Lennox was a Christian, said, turned to him and said, and, he, and she pointed at the picture and she said, and so what does your religion make of that? What does your religion make of that? And Lennox says, what was I to say? What, what could I say? Uh, but she still stood there waiting for an answer. And Lennox says, this is what I eventually said to her. He says, I would not insult your memory of your parents by offering simplistic answers to your question. I have no easy answers, but I do have what for me at least is a doorway into an answer. And his friend uh, turned, to her, turned to him and said, well, what's, what is that? What's the, what's the answer? And Lennox responded and he, and he said, well, you know that I'm a Christian which means that I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And I also believe that he was God incarnate, that he came into our world as our Savior. He says, now I know that you probably don't agree with me on this. But, but think about this question. That if Jesus really was God, what was God doing on the cross? What was God doing on the cross? And the woman was silent. She stood there standing motionless. And, and after a moment, uh, with tears in her eyes, she said quiet but audibly, why has no one ever told me that about my Messiah? What was God doing on the cross? On the cross, Jesus Christ was experiencing separation from God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know why he said that? Do you know why he was experiencing that? See, Jesus on the cross was dealing with the problem of meaninglessness. He was confronting it. He was dealing with it head on. He was dealing with our sin by taking it on himself. Jesus Christ on the cross experienced cosmic meaninglessness. He experienced a meaninglessness that you and I will never experience. He experienced all of the, the justice towards sin that God uh, had for, for, for our sin. He experienced Separation from God. He experienced chaos and meaninglessness in our place. In our place. And, and that's why what Romans 8 is saying is true. That's why we can know what it's saying is true. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because Jesus was separated from the love of God in our place. And that's why there's nothing that can separate you from the most meaningful thing in the world. God's love. Suffering cannot separate you from God's love in Christ. Death cannot separate you from God's love in Jesus Christ. The betrayal of a friend cannot separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. A season of, of difficulty and sorrow and grief cannot separate you from the love of God that's in Jesus. Sickness or disease or cancer cannot separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because all the separation from God that you and I deserve was placed on 
Jesus, and therefore there is none left for you and I. Only God's presence, only His love. And listen, on on this side of eternity, we know that the reasons why suffering happened are still a mystery. I love Lennox's line about how he says, I'm I'm not going to try to provide easy answers for these things. Don't, don't, try to, don't try to explain away suffering. Suffering is a mystery in many ways. We, we often don't know the, the reason for why suffering happens in our lives. But what we can know is what the reason is not. What we can know is what the reason is not. That it's not because God is displeased with us. It's not because God's angry with us. How do we know that? Look at the cross. Jesus Christ was experiencing all of God's displeasure, all of his anger. It's not because God's not in control. Look at the cross. On the cross, God was fully in control because he was dealing with the problem of sin and evil. He was dealing with the problem of suffering, and he was fully in control. He knew exactly what he was doing on the cross. And it, it, whatever it is, whatever reason suffering happens, it's not because God doesn't love us. Look at the cross. The cross is the objective evidence of God's great love for you, of his incredible compassion and grace and kindness towards you. Your uh, suffering is not meaningless in Jesus Christ. It is meaningful. It can have deep meaning for you. It can can form you to be uh, more like Jesus. Why? Because God himself suffered. And he, he suffered for you. And therefore, in the midst of our suffering, you can know that God is with you. And that's why... In Jesus Christ, there's a meaning. In Jesus Christ, there's, there's a meaning, there's a purpose, there's a, there's a significance that nothing can take away, that not even suffering and death can take away. And you can know that God, that God loves you even in the midst of difficulty. I want to put it like this, uh, to wrap it up like this as we close. Um, there, there are sort of three implications of this for your life that, that I want us to walk away from. Uh, One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, uh, when he preached his first sermon, uh, this this is part of what he said in his first sermon as an 18-year-old. He said, "If, if you're a Christian, there are three things that are true about you. Number one, that our bad things will turn out for good. Number two, that our good things can never be taken away from us. And number three, that our best things are yet to come. Number one, that our bad things will turn out for good. So earlier in this chapter in, in, in Romans 8, we're told in verse uh, 28 that because of Jesus, that God is working all things for our good. Who, he is all things for our good. For those who've been called according to his purpose, God works all things for good, even the difficult things. Even suffering. And this is why uh, Christianity's view of meaning is radically different from, from anyone else's. Because what it means is that God can use even something that looks meaningless, even, even something that looks difficult, God can use even that for purpose, for a purpose in your life. Because he's working all things for good. And look, th- this is actually a verse that a lot of us love to quote, but none of us fully understand it. None of us fully get suffering is still a mystery. And listen, this, this verse that, that God works all things for our good, that our bad things are going to turn out for good, this is not some cheap band-aid to stick on your suffering. This is not some cheap band-aid to stick on someone else's suffering. But what it is, 
is a deep-seated comfort that our, that our suffering is not pointless, that's not in vain, that's not meaningless. And that there's mystery behind it, but we can know that somehow, some way, God is going to turn all things out for good. How do we know that? Because look at the cross. Because in one of the most horrible events in all of history, God took what was painful and evil, the suffering of the Son of God on the cross, and he turned it into something radically beautiful. He turned it into something that we look back and we say, that was for us, that was for our salvation. That's the thing that gives us life. Our bad things will turn out for good, but also our good things will never be taken away from us. And Edwards here wasn't talking about uh, just things in this life. He wasn't talking about um, the finite things in the world. He was talking about the, the good things in the life. He was talking about uh, the things that God gives us. He was, he was talking about uh, what we have in God, his love for us, our relationship with him, the Holy Spirit that he gives us to, to know him and to commune with him, his word, our, the, our identity in him that we talked about last night. That all of those good things that Scripture promises, that, that, that none of those things can be taken away from us. That they are secure now and forever because nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And finally, the, the, the best things are yet to come. This gets at a little bit about what we'll be, what we'll be talking about tomorrow morning with hope. Um, but the Bible teaches that there's, there's a future coming when suffering and death are going to end. There, there's the future coming where God is going to restore His world. And even though we can't see it right now, even though we can't understand it, even though we can't understand it, God is going to take all the, the difficult, painful things in our life and he's going to turn it into something beautiful in the future. And that's our hope, that the best things are yet to come. Listen, what else offers you that kind of meaning? What else offers you that kind of purpose? What else offers you that kind of significance that is that secure? that your bad things will turn out for good, that your good things will never be taken away from you, and that your best things are yet to come. What else offers you that? What else offers you that? Because of Jesus Christ, you have a meaning that not even suffering and death can destroy. We're going to transition now into a time of, of reflection and thinking about this talk, so I want to invite the band and uh, Brandon to, to come on up. And uh, just as you have reflected on what we've said so far this weekend and both last night, uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to throw some reflection questions up on the screen, and, um, and the band is going to play. And so I just would encourage you to, to use this time uh, just to reflect between you and God and to, to reflect on um, where you're at with Him, uh, to reflect on uh, what, what is something that you think that God is saying to you, something that, that has, has struck you. Um, and so I just would encourage you to, to grab your, uh, your Bible or uh, maybe a pen or a notebook or something that you can write on or maybe, maybe even just think about these questions to yourself. Uh, but this is going to be a time for you to process um, some of the things that we've talked about uh, this morning. So let me pray for us and then we'll transition into a time of reflection. Lord God, thank you that you are a God who brings about beauty and meaning into this world, and yet you're also a God that redeems it. You're also a God that uh, loves us enough to send your son to die for us so that we can know that your love will never be taken away from us, that we can know that your love for us is secure. It's secure not just now, but forever. Lord, I pray that whatever we're dealing with this morning, this weekend, 
whatever kind of suffering is in this room, whatever kind of chaos and meaninglessness that we're facing. Lord, would you make your presence known to us? Would you make it known to us that there is nothing, that not even that, not even this, can separate us from your love? Lord, would you help us to experience your love right now in this moment? Help us to experience your love this weekend as we continue uh, to spend time with one another. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us that much. You love us enough to go to hell and back for us on the cross.